welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who like to use a lot of words, yet say nothing at all. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Hey now, it's episode number 176 for March 31st, 2014. On today's show, someone with no name wants to make a Cadbury cream egg stand. Can't wait to talk about that. Uh, Max is looking for budget chisels. Tom is trying to avoid tear out when cutting plywood. Dustin wants to know how often to flatten his water stones. Mariah is pondering the draw knife. Keith wants to clamp his workbench flat. Peter is having trouble setting up his skew rabbit plane. And Ashley has some concerns about the lack of art deco instruction. Hmm. And, uh, wow. Yeah. That, that it'll be, that's a feature-packed show. I mean, there's Seriously, a lot going that's on. That's a mixed there. bag right there. It really Ooh, is. I don't even. I can't wait to listen to this one. Let me know when it's over. <laughs> you, you might have to join us on it, though. Uh, all right, all that and more coming up. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Bruso Hardware. Bruso has been manufacturing high-precision woodworking hardware in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is produced at their factory in Belleville, New Jersey, and is available through distributors worldwide. View the complete product line, including knife hinges, butt hinges, quadrant hinges, and more at brusso.com. As a special offer to Wood Talk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for a 10% discount. All right, you probably don't have much longer for that discount, so if you want to take advantage of that 10% off, Brusso Hardware is a good thing, and you may want to get on that before it's too late. They have some nice butt hinges. But I laugh every time tee you say that in the commercial. Tee and uh, real quick at the top here, I'd like to thank our recurring donors, uh, folks who sent us a few bucks recently, which we really appreciate. Jim M, Dave W, Wayne B, and Nick H. And I hope you guys don't mind me just giving you the initial on a last name. I don't feel uh, I don't feel like it's right to just blurt out people's last names on the show. Hey, Matt V thinks it's perfectly fine. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I guess Marquez should uh, continue on here. And guess what? Do you know what today is, guys? Um, it's our opening day. No, well, maybe these things are true. Uh, Matt, <laughs> I think you said it. It's uh, it's our birthday or it aniver- <laughs> anniversary. It's not our birthday. It's our anniversary, I guess. Yay. Uh, so tomorrow, technically April 1st, April Fool's Day, very appropriately, is the anniversary of Wood Talk. And you know what we're going to do to celebrate it? Uh, I'm probably going to have to go to work. No, yeah. we're, we're just going to do another show. Okay, well, yeah, in that case, that's exactly what we're doing. It's it's just like any other year. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's a lot Basically, like my... Uh, this anniversary is like every birthday after your 21st. <laughs> kind of, yeah. You know, well, yeah. honestly, it's a lot like my anniversaries with Nicole. Um, we celebrate by simply staying married for another year. <laughs> so <laughs> That's always a good foundation. <laughs> yeah, so for, for uh, with you guys, I will stay married to you on the show for another year. And we'll uh, we'll revisit this again next April. I'm I think I'm still on. paying off the uh, anniversary gift I got Sam like uh, four years ago. See, it's not worth it, man. You go into yeah. debt over it. So it's like uh, school debt. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. All right. Exactly. Let's move into what's on the bench. I've got uh, not a whole lot. I haven't been in the shop, actually. Just been focused on, on stuff. It actually, took a lot of time off last week. So I got a lot of Skyrim under my belt which uh, I'm I'm sure more than half of our audience has no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) He was outside. Is that what's going on? Must be nice. The weather's wonderful. I was as inside as you can get in some imaginary far off land, destroying all kinds of uh, little uh, bad guys. Uh, But it was a blast. I needed some mental time off to recharge the brain batteries. Uh, But I did take some time to start designing an upcoming guild build that we're doing. And uh, the Morris chair is the next project in the guild. And, and you, you know, it's one of those things where you guys, 
you probably have done this where you're building something that is has a relatively classic form. It's something that lots of people have done and redone and you're trying to put your own spin on it. And that could be kind of a challenge, especially with something like a Moorish chair. Um, but what, what we did and having some talks with Aaron, if, um, uh, those that don't know, Aaron Marshall is the guy that does all my SketchUp work and helps me build the plans. Uh, but he also tends to co-design with me. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, that typically it's like too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing when you try <laughs> more than one person to collaborate on a design. But for some reason, Aaron and I work really well together and we're trying to bang out the design for this thing. Um, but what we did was we went back to the original uh, where the Stickley Morris chair got its inspiration from and we're trying to draw elements from that. And it's it's kind of interesting when you do it that way because you could see where everybody else got their inspiration from. But it seems these days, any new designs tend to have their inspiration purely from sort of the, the Stickley interpretation of, of the Morris chair. So, so basically you just added a cup holder? Yes. And, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, what else? Um, little, a little sleeve on the side for remote controls would be nice. <laughs> nice. You have a built in nice. charger because that would be awesome for when I start playing one too many games on the iPad. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. So, so I'm having a lot of fun with that. It's going to be a nice bow arm style, uh, with the reclining action for the back. And, um, I don't know. We'll see. I really, Stickly has some really, really cool looking stuff. And the problem is once you see that crap, you have a really hard time getting it out of your head. You know, so yeah. it's like, I look at it and I go, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Can't we yes. just build that? And it's like, no, we probably can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but this, all this stuff is very derivative. So there's a certain amount of it that I guess would be ethically okay to borrow. And then a certain amount that would be a little bit too much of a, a shot across the, the bow there. So um, we're just trying to be very, very um, good neighbors, I guess you could say, to to make a nice design that's not too derivative, but you can only make so many variations in the Morris chair. So, yeah, good stuff. Uh, Shannon, how about you? Well, um, it's interesting that you bring that up um, because I'm also in a design phase. I've got this um, guest bedroom suite that I'm about to start. And, uh, well, depending on how quickly I get my designs together. And I'm learning the merits of self-editing <laughs> because, you know, you, you look at a lot of things and I really have fallen in love with the whole Pinterest rabbit hole. There's just seems to be no end of pretty pictures to look at there. But, you know, what you just said rings true. Once you see kind of one thing, it's so hard not to be so heavily influenced by it that your design just comes up looking like what you just saw. Yep. And, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of it stems from starting with relatively simple projects. And, um, you know, I, I'm building this whole bedroom suite. And a couple of things are, are pretty straightforward. I'm not going to really mess around with the bed design all that much. Um, build on a blanket chest, which is not going to be, you know, it's going to be a pretty typical blanket chest. I'm trying to stick to a, an early colonial style because that's what's already matching. This is actually going in my house. So I have to, I'm beholden to a higher power called Heather. <laughs> that it, <laughs> it matches the existing uh, decor and sticks, sticks with our house. But I wanted to have one piece that was kind of like the flagship, the showpiece of the whole suite. And that's where I'm really stretching my design um, wings, if you will. And it's just like I had something put together and you kind of take a step back and you look at it and go, God, that's ugly. That's just like so busy. I've incorporated so many different features from looking at stuff on Pinterest. You're like, oh, I like that. And I like that. I like that. It's like um, some of the green and green pick um, examples you see now where it's like every single element from every green and green bungalow combined into one one piece of furniture. Yeah. Like, whoa, time to edit out a little bit. So I'm I'm – 
stepping back from the the crazy precipice of over design and trying my damnedest to not to not do that as much as I want to do these individual techniques uh, I have to kind of shut down Pinterest and walk away from it because it's <laughs> it's bad news. Do so you, what I did is then go down to the shop and did some spring cleaning instead. <laughs> nice. Do you think that like folks who uh, I don't want to name any names specifically, but people who are just really naturally good designers and they pride themselves on their design. That's just what they're into. Do you think they have this sort of issue or is this an issue for maybe the rest of us to put us all into <laughs> one category where we don't really have an original idea in our head? We just have mushed up ideas of uh, that are from other people's concepts. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I feel right. like I never have an original design idea. I can just morph and change other people's design ideas to make the whole thing my own. But I honestly don't feel like I ever have an original woodworking <laughs> thought in that regard. It's right. Kind no, of sad, I, I agree. But. And I think we are so heavily influenced by all the stuff. I mean, all three of us are, are, are internet woodworkers. I mean, yeah. we've kind of started woodworking in the internet age and you can't help but be influenced by all that crap that's out there. I do think people are naturally gifted at design. Um, I, I'll, I'll name names. I think guys like Chris Wong, um, he's just got some cool ideas floating around in his head. Right. Now, some of it, I think Chris is just like trying to be difficult. Well, know, yeah, trying to I'm challenge do himself. Because no one's ever done it before. Pu- pushing really, the limits. Really cool. Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, on a slightly different thing, I'll, I'll say your web guy, Mark, John Funk, the, the dude's incredible. Yeah. Um, when it comes to his design, he just pulls stuff off of a blank page. I cannot do that. Right. I, I just don't have that capability. Yeah, I don't know. You know what? I'd be interested to hear back from the audience too. If which camp you find yourself in, do ideas just come to you, or do you find that the way you design your furniture is just looking at a bunch of other pictures and picking and choosing, sort of a la carte style, what you want to build? I, I think that that's true, though, for so many other things, not just woodworking, but just about every. Well, We'll put it under the big umbrella of art form out there. Yeah. I happen to enjoy watching shows like uh, uh, Project Runway, which a lot of people can make jokes about it. But it's really interesting watching creative people work. In fact, I, I talked before about our friends that do baking and they were on uh, Cupcake Wars. And for them to simply throw out an idea, them being the judges that are like, OK, the theme for today is uh, U.S. versus USSR uh, space race. Now go. Right. And suddenly the two of them – and our friend came up with this idea. He's like, let's see, uh, buckwheat uh, cupcakes with such and such frosting, blah, 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 blah. I would have been like, uh, frosting that looks like the U.S.? <laughs> Red you know? frosting against blue frosting. <laughs> yeah, Very and, original. And the neat thing is like when you watch these shows and you do see these people talk about like, okay, well, there's this one and this is going to influence it. And I'm going to bring in this type of thing. And you know, it's really neat to see how that – whole creativity works in their minds, how they, they process this. And then when you see something go down and they're convinced, like, this is totally, you know, my own design. And then suddenly the judges start picking it out, picking it apart and are like, well, you know, that design actually was from uh, the runway in uh, New York <laughs> in 2003. It was the third dress down on so-and-so's line. And it's like, oh, yeah, I did well, get see, influence from it, them. Well, and it's it's one of those things that comes down to the how deep you are into it. And I think a lot of times I'll post a design and I'll do something that, you know, show something I built that I can tell you exactly what three or four resources that came from. But right. then folks who are maybe a little bit newer to the craft, they go in and go, wow, look at this thing Mark just designed. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> this, this is not my design. This is just something that's very derivative. Right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a matter of awareness and how much you know. I mean, the same right. thing when I watch a great example with an off-topic show is uh, Top Chef. 
is yes. another one, you know, where, where, and it's cooking. And it's one of those things where you're like, I don't know enough about the, the, the people they learned from to then yeah. say, oh, this is so-and-so's recipe or this is yeah. a, I'm just convinced a that my palate is retarded because <laughs> yes, the here. stuff they come up with, I'm like, that's like so cool, but I'm afraid it would be wasted on me. It's like, I wouldn't taste it to be like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they're like, ooh, yep. the, the fine overtones and how you mix this spice and that spice. And I'm like, you did what now? Yeah, it's food. It goes down. Hey, look, I eat hamburger helper and it tastes great. So exactly. <laughs> well, well, hey, since you both have thrown one out there, face off. That one's mine. On yes, sci-fi. that is special really effects good. show. Oh, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they go, they show up in like some amusement park. And before you know it, they're sketching out these like horrible and amazing monsters. It's it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. They have design skills that I will never have. Nice. Cool. Ink Master. I'm just going to throw that one out there, too. <laughs> so this will be the episode on TV show suggestions that have nothing to do with woodworking. That's right. All right, All right Matt, how about you? What's going on? Well, real plain and simple, uh, not a lot happened this weekend. It is finally warm enough in Michigan. And by warm enough, I mean it's at least 43 degrees. So that <laughs> means uh, the top part of the polar ice cap is starting to melt in our area. And I was able to finally bring Aiden's platform bed out to the garage where I could finally start applying uh, the final coats of polyurethane uh, to it without having the family wanting to strangle me due to it stinking up the whole entire house. So that was the big thing for me. And, and this was like one of those, I hate to say this, but sometimes with projects, I just I kind of, and we've talked about this actually, uh, rush the whole entire finishing project. It's like, I just want to slap this on, get it mm-hmm. done. It's going to be in a dark room. Nobody's really going to notice it. And there are parts of this bed, the majority of it, uh, that I have like actually stretched out the amount of time that I'm putting into the finishing. So for once, rather than talking about how important it is to take your time doing the finishing I'm actually doing what I'm talking about, and it's scaring the living daylights out of me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's no longer do as I say, not as I do. I'm actually doing it as I say to do it's, originally. It's do as I do, just do better. Right. Right. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> I like so, that. Yeah. So it, it's it's coming along really nicely, and I'm, I'm like cool. totally impressed. The one thing I will say is this is the first time I've worked with a very – figured wood like I have here. This is really, really curly maple. And I have never really... I've seen you work with it, Mark, and I've seen others work with it, and you get the finish on there. I never realized how many coats you have to build up to really have it not suck it in. It's like, this is either the driest wood or the whole entire (laughs) thing is end grain. Yeah, it can be very thirsty, but it looks looks good when it's done. It's totally worth it. Yeah, I think I'm on the fifth gallon of finish right now, and it's (laughs) almost stopped sucking everything in. Yeah. Very cool. All right, let's move into what's new. We got some links to share with you from around the internet, uh, stuff that basically you guys sent to us because we're too lazy to go get it ourselves. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, uh, this one here is from Jake. He sent a link about this cool log sculpture. Now, if you've read woodworking books and you've seen like images, I've seen this picture a number of times, but I've never seen it in an actual piece of material. Uh, it's basically where they take a log and cut it up into its parts in the way that it would be sawn apart for various types of cuts. So you're looking at the end of the log and it's kind of just um, like an exploded diagram in a way, showing you all the various uh, orientations of cuts that they typically can get from a log. So kind of cool, nice to see it in three dimensions. And for folks who aren't that familiar, maybe you've been using things like quarter sawn wood or riff sawn wood, and you kind of know what to look for in the boards, but how does that actually relate to the tree as the whole? Uh, it's a very, very cool thing to look at. Now, if only they could come up with a technology where the tree actually just explodes the way it looks. <laughs> just hit a button and it just goes, <laughs> <laughs> you got all these boards. 
That would be awesome. Well, hey, this next uh, link came in from Jay, and he wants to remind us why loose sleeves aren't cool around spinning tools. And I have to say that I actually did one of those things where I watched the video, and I knew something bad was going to happen, and I still screamed. Thankfully, when you watch this video, (laughs) it's not – it's horrific in the sense that you don't want to be this person, but it's not horrific in the sense that there's blood and splatter everywhere. But I have a feeling – Somebody had to go clean their pants right afterwards. Yeah, it's yeah, not, see, not gory I'm, at all. I'm just evil because I laughed. There was something <laughs> about how, like, the speed that it, it was just like this very casual guy being sucked into a lave. Right. <laughs> well, you can and only. Because there was no blood. I was just going to say. Because there was yeah. no, you know, although it looked like he was kind of had a bloody nose or something when they pulled him out of there. But uh, it just seemed like it went in slow motion, even though it wasn't. Just kind of, oh, look, I'm being pulled into the lathe. And it was somewhat comic for me. I guess I'm twisted. <laughs> No well, comment. Literally twisted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 I guess that's the big thing is there is no gore, but as a woodworker, when you know you're about to see something happen and you've you've been on that tool or a similar tool in the shop, you just kind of, your heart's in your throat and then he just goes, uh, kind of gets wrapped up into it and just shows you how quickly things can go wrong, you know? And, and this is the one thing that uh, every safety day, safety week in the past, people tend to drive home the point that if you think you're safe, you know, that that's fine. You can be a well-practiced or a very experienced woodworker and, and you know how to use these tools, but they call them accidents for a reason. Um, right. Otherwise, they'd be called on purposes. And mm. uh, Well, I think that's what my family <laughs> accuses me of, is that dad doesn't have accidents. He has deliberates. Yeah, deliberates. Um, you know, the, accidents do happen because we slip up. You know, we make mistakes. And if that mistake involves like something like this, it's just like you could totally have prevented that. Just didn't, you know, you didn't have a have to have a long sleeve shirt on. Um, I've been trying to get better at taking my ring off. Um, I haven't had any close calls or anything, but I've seen a couple pictures recently that made me go, you know what? It's just it's just not worth it. It's not worth the chance. Um, and I'm outweighing the possibility of my wife killing me for losing my ring, um, just for the sake of saving my finger and possibly more, which I'm yeah. sure she will understand. <laughs> that is one I, I definitely need to get behind because I am, I'm horrible about it too. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think Shannon, you're up next. I never even thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Hand tool. <laughs> I'm just hoping it still comes off. I know. Right. That's the thing. Will it? I don't know. Let's see here. This comes in from Jay as well. Actually, Jay was trying to to dominate the what's new section. I think we had to we had to edit him a little bit so that he <laughs> yeah. can dominate the whole thing. <laughs> nice, Jay. This is um this is a video on YouTube where uh, it's a Dewalt sander that uh, apparently has a faulty uh, rubber tool switch, and I guess it just kind of this is a random orbit sander. It just kind of flipped on all up by itself. And fortunately, it was kind of nestled in the crook of a chair, like where the back splat meets the back of the seat. So when the sander started going, it kind of went right over to the corner and it stuck there. But according to this video, I guess it was running all night long. Um, So that the the lady who's narrating it says, you know, come, we come into the shop and we hear this noise and we have no idea what it is. And here's this little sander just going to town. And it's like sanded its way, like almost all the way through the seat. So it was a little uh, little scary to think that, you know, your tool just comes on by itself. And a reminder to unplug your tools yeah. at the end of the day. Can you imagine? I mean, ugh, that, that just scares me thinking about most of the time I do just rest the tool somewhere that it could do damage like that. Right. You know, it's not sitting safely in a rack suspended in the air. So that's definitely something to think about. These things, you keep them plugged in, you just sometimes never know. 
I can relate to that little standard, though. I've had those moments at work where I just like doing straight forward, never think about it, just keep on going, 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 going. And people are like, what's Matt doing? I don't know, but he's almost <laughs> in that chair. Well, you know what? The funny thing is now that I think about it, that particular sander, I used to own a DeWalt sander just like that one. And it had a tendency with mine where because it's a coated rubber switch, you sometimes push in and think you have it shut off all the way. Oh, and, yes. and it is, but it's actually just kind of sitting somewhere in the like, middle. click. Yeah, I haven't fully yeah. pushed it, but it did stop it. And if you sit it down and walk away, and I can see how that would happen with that particular unit. So, um, you kind of scary to think about, though. Mm. All right. Yeah, I think the next one is with uh, from Mitch. He sends us a video that you most likely have seen already, but this is Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs Mike Rowe, uh, has a video that he narrates called I Am a Woodshop. Uh, this is Mitch's words here. He says a video micro put together to support some high school students who protested the closing of their school's trade program. It's a spinoff of a video that he did for Walmart that received a lot of attention. And in, from what I understand, these kids protested and wound up, um, really getting punished. They got suspended and weren't able to attend prom or some dance or something like that. Uh, so, you know, kind of sad stuff, but the way it's narrated, uh, Mike Rose, awesome. He's got a really good voice. So his narration of this thing is very touching and just kind of makes you realize how much it sucks when something like this goes away. Yeah. It's like when Morgan Freeman or somebody like reads something, you're just like, <laughs> I have no interest in this topic, but it doesn't matter what he's saying. It's just how he's saying it. <laughs> exactly. Totally. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, we have this next one. And speaking of inspirational, I, you know, it's always fun to go over and see some of the really great stuff that oftentimes Vimeo. And now I've even seen a few on YouTube. Uh, there's kind of these neat intro to an artist or a conversation with a, a, an artist type of interview video. And this one is sent in from Justin. It's about Brian A. Hubble. And he says, you know, Mark, I, I think you will appreciate this craftsman. His style is very much reminds me of your pieces. Hmm. And so I was, I was just over there reminding myself of uh, what Brian has going on here. And again, this is totally just kind of an interview. In fact, it's it's almost the type of thing that I think you might see on their website almost as like a, a resume type of thing, like what they do, what inspires them. Yeah. And the neat thing about it is while they're talking about what inspires them, it just might catch you on a good day and may inspire you. So definitely worth checking out. And, uh, Vimeo is pretty good about finding, you know, having a whole bunch of stuff like this. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Really yeah. good. Vimeo quality. is like where every woodworker is Frank Howarth. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> or they seem to know people who are like professional video producers. So they just kind of do right. their thing in their shop and somebody comes along and just makes this really, really awesome, fancy looking video. Good stuff. All right, let's move into our poll of the week by our buddy Tom Iovino. Tom's workbench.com is where you can find more from Tom. Question he asked this week is, are your tools on the level? So really, do you do you wind up bother do you actually bother leveling your power tools? And uh, nice simple oh. answers this week. Oh, I thought he meant something else. I, yeah, like, I, I didn't even like, ask the guy. It was a good deal. It was in the back alley. I just took it. <laughs> right? Yeah, I've, I've got receipts, I swear. I paid for it. <laughs> uh, all right, so split down the middle, really, for the yes and no's. Um, about 29% say, of course, it's the right thing to do. Another 29% say, no way, I want to build, not fuss with a level. 38% said, I had no idea I was supposed to worry about this. <laughs> That's I, me. And uh, 2% say, I don't use power tools. Now, for the record, I fall into the camp that says, well, I say no, 
but also tying into the other answer that I wasn't that I don't really worry about it because ultimately I don't think level in most situations really matters. Flat matters. We've talked about this uh, in, in reference to workbench surfaces, right? Um, right? It's not necessarily important that it's level to the ground or level to earth. It's just it needs to be flat. So uh, the one of the compelling arguments I heard for level is someone who has their table saw that is connected to their outfeed table and their outfeed table is a workbench. And then there's like two or three things in alignment with one another. So if you want all those to be nice and flat and in alignment, it's a lot easier to do that if everything is also level, okay. uh, you know, but other than that, for the most part, unless you've got some serious, uh, I don't know, some garages have a, quite a bit of a slope to, away from the home. If you've got that situation, maybe you would want to level for that, but I've never leveled a tool ever in my shop yeah, unless unless the tools like roll off the bench on their own i'm good yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> in, interesting stuff but i guess the people who didn't know or are, are sound like they're on the right track in this case <laughs> yeah. here's good news here's something else that you just don't really need to be that concerned about that's right that's what we're here for tell you what not to worry about all right so we got quite a few kickback let's rip through them first one here's from our buddy bob rosieski he says i think nick's situation oh this is back with the breadboard ends uh, that nick had an issue with in fact, oh, yes, with the, the finish was, uh, was it not stretching or it was breaking? Wasn't that the exactly. issue with it? Yes. Yeah, it was cracking along that joint. You got it, last episode. And also Stan has a, a, a something in the same, so I'll, I'll read both of these. Uh, Bob says, I think Nick's situation is a textbook uh, case for pre-finishing. I'd suggest masking off the breadboard and mortises and the tenons on the main tabletop. Then go ahead and apply five to six coats of poly. After the fifth coat, Go ahead and assemble the breadboards, install the pegs if they're being used, level them with the breadboard ends, then scuff sand the entire assembled top with your finest grit and apply only the sixth coat to the assembled top. That way, only a single coat of finish will be bridging the breadboard joint. This should solve the problem with the finish cracking around the joint as the film that spans the joint won't be thick enough to have any structural integrity. Stan wrote in with another idea. He says, a few years ago, before I started really getting into woodworking, we purchased a couple of handcrafted shaker-style cherry end tables with breadboard ends. The craftsman used a small chamfer on the breadboard end and the body of the table. Both surfaces are at the same level. The chamfer gives a nice shallow line. About a year ago, when I built my own cherry end table, I used the same technique. The top is sealed with about four coats of wipe-on poly. So far, so good, no problems. Very, very nice. Cool. Hey, well, we have this one came in from Michael D. And he says, in the last episode, you guys had a little conversation about the virtues of both using a honing guide and sharpening freehand. I'm very fortunate to have some good acquaintances who happen to be world-class traditional apprentice woodworkers. Uh, just for uh, the record, folks, he's going to be dropping a lot of names here. Yeah. Braggart. Uh, I when thought I was, was talking about us. Well, I think he was going there, but then suddenly he's like, oh, I should probably name real people. Uh, when I was first started into woodworking, I was given a few hand tools by legendary wood, wooden boat builder Bob Smallsler. Among them was a one-inch bench chisel. When he gave it to me, it was razor sharp, and it stayed that way for many months of use. Recently, I was also visiting the workshop of my friend Stephen Shepard and noticed that his chisels and plain irons looked just like the one I got from Mr. Smallsler. Namely, the bevels were flat along the edge, but heavily cambered along the bevel. This, I was told, is the result of sharpening freehand and not really worrying about the bevel angle at all. I have adopted this method and have experienced no problems with the sharpness or performance of my chisels or hand plane irons. The big lesson in all of this, at least to me, is that we woodworkers tend to fuss about things far too much, and most of them probably don't matter. So if anyone is apprehensive about freehand sharpening because they fear they won't be able to maintain a perfect and crisp 25-degree bevel, I say, don't worry about it. I have no idea what any of my chisel or plain iron bevels 
angles are, all I know is that they are all razor sharp and they all cut wood just fine. You're here, Michael. Right nice. on. Nice. You know, uh, can I provide a slight rebuttal? Um, sure, go for it. Because I don't know. Because no, it'll be wrong. It, what? <laughs> what? Me? Wrong? Okay, Never. We're going to kick back the kickback again. <laughs> no, go for it. No, I just want to say that for me, a lot of times it's not about hitting a perfect 25. It's about hitting the perfect angle that I hit last time. Because right. if I do that, it takes far fewer strokes to get that edge sharp. Now, if I can't nail that 25 again freehand, it's going to take me a lot longer because I, I need to be consistent about it. And I would I would guess that Michael is a lot better than he leads on here because if he isn't getting consistent angles as he just for every operation as he's holding at that particular angle, let's say he moves at every stroke, he's never going to get a sharp edge. So he's probably a lot better at it than he, he he sort of leads on here. You have to be pretty consistent, even if it's, I agree, it doesn't have to be exactly 25 or whatever particular degree you're going for, but you have to be consistent with it. Um, you know, it, and one more thing I want to add to this is after I read this and after we had the discussion last week, one thing I thought about too, and I think somebody even emailed in about this, was there's a concern sometimes about when you have, say, the bevel, or even especially the micro bevel, you might notice perhaps even when using a honing jig, that one end looks like it's being touched more than the other. So it almost looks like it's rather being 90 degrees on that on, on the bevel itself. It's maybe off a little bit. Mm. And I used to freak out about that. I'm like, my, my micro bevels have to be perfectly parallel with that front edge. <laughs> and the funny thing is, even when they're not, I still get good really results, good results from it. So maybe, maybe I'm halfway to being okay with freehand sharpening. <laughs> well, and you know, maybe right. this is also one of those situations that goes back to our saw uh at, what it was at the dovetail magnetic saw guy thing where yes. if you just kind of rip the band-aid off and go for it you find out that it's actually not as hard as you think it is you just got to right. dive right into it right. <laughs> well and, and that's i think as i said this in the last episode that's what i did when i was suddenly at a museum with nothing but oil stones and no honing guide and a hell of a lot of dull tools it's kind of like, well, I've got four hours before the museum closes. Let's just figure it out. And right. Yeah. By the end of it, I was sharpening freehand. Cool. Cool beans. Let's see here. Last uh, piece. Oh, not last piece, but next piece of kickback we have is from Rick. Rick, um, Rick. And this is in relation to Mark's aversion to the unattended consequences of sideways pressure on a sandy disc on the table saw or drill press. It might be solved if someone has a mini lathe. An MDF disc with sandpaper on it mounted to a faceplate makes a great disc sander. The speed can be adjusted and the tool is made for that type of lateral pressure. So, very cool. Nice. Very good. Assuming nice your lathe has variable speed. Yeah, and you might have to figure out how to mount some kind of a, a table in front of that thing too, right? The tool rest isn't going to quite cut it for like a nice flat surface. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah, that should be, I mean, you could just enough. move the tool rest and put a little box on top of the, the lathe itself, the lathe bin. Okay. Well, you know, uh, Shannon, your treadle lathe, I imagine that has adjustable speed. It does. <laughs> Infinitely variable speed. As coffee Infinite or water? Upon, coffee or water? Right. <laughs> Depending on how recently I ate a Snickers bar. <laughs> right. All right. Next one here. Last one is from Jim. He says, I was just listening to your podcast about the Shelix cutter upgrade and whether or not it was worth it over the Grizzly spiral cutter on the Grizzly planer. Uh, I recently bought a 12-inch joiner, Grizzly 12-inch joiner, and found that the most economical spiral cutter solution was to buy the standard knives and then buy the bird Shelix head from Grizzly. And uh, he says, yes, you read that right. The Grizzly was a Grizzly spiral with a Grizzly spiral cutter is more expensive than the same Grizzly upgraded to a bird Shelix. 
Uh, and that's actually what I was alluding to last time. I didn't know what the prices were, but I'm like, I don't know. It, it could actually wind up being comparable to get what is seen as the better head. Uh, he continues right. on and says, also, the bird has about 50% more cutters and produces a much smoother finish than the grizzly equivalent. Go figure. I don't know if the bird is quieter, but I sure it sure produces a better finish and in this case, a lower cost. Um, if I can, I'd love to weigh in on this because I remember when this, when this kickback came in Mm -hmm. and it actually spurred me into this. You guys remember I bought a Grizzly 20 inch planer uh, a while ago Yeah, Mm -hmm. and there was a whole big snafu with shipping and um, it shouldn't reflect poorly on Grizzly. I haven't talked about it because I didn't want it to reflect poorly on Grizzly. Grizzly, it was entirely my issue and how I bought it. And it just, it was kind of a snafu. I was going to go pick it up and decided not to, and they started shipping it and I told them not to ship it. And needless to say, I got put off uh, for a long time. So I went ahead and bought the planer and kind of left it on uh, will call pickup because I'm going to be heading up to their PA store at some point to pick it up, but I'm going to use a, a company truck because obviously it won't fit in the back of my Honda Accord. <laughs> um, but I, this email came in and it prompted me to go to Grizzly and I have since changed my order huh. because I had purchased the 20 inch um, carbide cutter head, the, the whatever, GO4 something something 20 inch planer. Yeah. It's like a, I want to say a $2,700 planer mm-hmm. um, with the Grizzly cutter head on it. They have another upgrade above that that's like $2,900, almost $3,000 that supposedly has a heavier duty dutier heavier dutier <laughs> cutter head Duty. but there's still there's still kind of that pseudo helical pattern that bird talks about saying they're not quite the same yeah so i i researched the bird cutter head a little bit more and he's right there are a heck of a lot more cutters and there is that shearing angle and there's that for lack of a better term the gullet between the teeth isn't a true helix pattern that actually ejects chips and they've done testing on this like a hell of a lot more efficiently than the other cutter heads. So all signs point to the Hela or Shelix being a, a much, much better cutter head that's going to produce a, a smoother cut. So I started looking at this and I priced it. The regular Grizzly 20-inch planer with the straight knives is, instead of it being $2,700, it's like $1,700. Wow. And on the same page on the Grizzly website is the ability to buy the Bird Shelix cutter head for that Grizzly planer. Um, is not a Grizzly brand. It's a bird cutter head that's yeah. available through the Grizzly site. So you can add both of those to your cart and it ends up being like $400 cheaper than buying the top of the line, like $3,000 Grizzly 20 inch planer. But do you have to do the assembly? That's I'm assuming, yeah, right? And, and you know, so in that respect, it makes sense because yes, I have to do that work, but a little bird told me that it's not really that hard and that I yeah. may have to go someplace and rent a, a gear puller and that's about it. It is. Um, the rent part is in quotes, by the way, the, the rent a gear <laughs> you, puller. You borrow it. <laughs> um, but you know, even then, if I'm spending $400 less, I've got a little bit of work and I'm getting this dramatically better cutter head. Um, that was a no brainer for me. Yeah. So I went ahead and changed my order and because it was on will call, it wasn't a big deal. It was just a matter of them putting another one on hold for me. Of course, I got to go pick it up within 30 days or it won't be there. (laughs) Nice. That sounds good, man. And it's literally an afternoon. It's a a morning or an afternoon to replace it, get the new head in there and you will be off to the races. And I heard that that little bird actually enjoys uh, uh, barbecue. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. Yes, he does. Um, Speaking of birds. Okay. So if I bought barbecue, he'd install it for me. Um, maybe <laughs> you'd have to bring it out hey, here. We have a couple of voicemails. We do. Uh, yeah, let's get to it. The first one we have here, I don't know the person's name, but I love the question. 
Hi guys. Love your show. Um, I'm making a project for my wife. She likes Cadbury cream eggs and I'm mm. making a stand for Cadbury cream eggs. I know that sounds weird. Um, not at all. Sounds delicious. What I'm not frankly. sure is how to get an imprint of an egg on a flat piece of wood approximately at its deepest, maybe a quarter to three eighths of an inch, um, an egg laying on its side. Um, so basically an oval that's kind of tapered on one end. Uh, is that something I should do with a, a router, like a plunge router, and pick it up as I go, or hand carving? I'm sure there's different ways to do it, but I guess I'm looking for some suggestions. So Again, I love the show, and uh, thanks for any tips. All right. Now, first and most importantly, Cadbury cream eggs are about one of the most delicious things on the planet. Yes. yes. And they should not be laying on their side. They should be in my stomach. <laughs> yeah. in any Seriously, why build a stand? They don't stay around long enough. <laughs> like a Cadbury egg, if you just think about it and just what it looks like, it should be one of the most disgusting things ever. Like like the interiors, like the milky, like the fact that it actually does look like an egg or maybe like an right. egg that's gone they bad. Simulate the yolk in the middle. Yeah, yeah it should be so nasty. But oh my gosh, I, if they're around, I, can, I can't not eat them. It's terrible. It, and I would not mind if Cadbury would like to sponsor the show by <laughs> yeah. feeding my belly. <laughs> I would love for them to sponsor. That'd be great. Okay, so we're looking to mount some eggs. The real woodworking issue here is how do you have this tapering a little divot in there that would have sort of the shape of an egg. And the first thing that comes to mind is of course the router. I would, I would try, I mean, this might take some practice to get it right, but I would try to run the router over a incline and it really just a degree or two. It shouldn't be that much. Uh, and this way you can kind of run it in one direction. I probably would have to use a, excuse me, like a guide bushing or something to control the, the motion forward. But the idea is to let it lift out. So you would plunge down, or actually maybe do it the other way. You would start so that you're cutting lightly and going on an incline downwards or a decline to go a little bit deeper and use a really wide core box bit. Um, that probably will get you close. I don't know if it's going to be exactly what he's looking for with an egg, but depending on the bit and the, the incline you, you build in the jig, you could probably get pretty darn close, I would think. Hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, you know, I think at the heart of it is, as he said, getting the imprint um, so actually knowing what that profile looks like and, um, you know, again, this is, he's saying quarter to three eighths inch deep. So it's not like he's looking for a friction fit. That's actually going to hold the egg. Yeah. So you can kind of fudge that effect. But if you really wanted to get exact, um, I would recommend actually slicing one of those eggs in half, keep the foil wrapper on it. So you can like not end up with goo all over your workpiece, but that way you can put the flat down. And then you can trace around it so you get the exact imprint. And then you also could actually take measurements from that cross section mm. of the egg. And you can eat the other half while you do this, which is key. <laughs> right? um, so it, then at least you can kind of build a, a profile. And then if necessary, you could maybe use a drill bit to make some depth holes or whatever. Um, and then I would just use a spoon gouge um, and just work down to those drill bit holes disappear. Uh, and then you know you're at depth. Well, that's that's how we hollow out Windsor seats. Take a couple of drill bits to drill to a specific depth, right? And then you use a travisher or a gouge or whatever until that drill bit hole disappears, and then you're at depth. Well, and how many how many come in your average pack? Is it like five in uh, cream eggs? If you're getting not in? enough, <laughs> that's not enough. <laughs> I, so I guess that's the thing. How many does he need to hold? If it's only you know four or five, I could see doing them by hand. If he's got if he's looking to like really make a big wow presentation with like thirty cream eggs on uh, yeah. Easter morning. 
then it might be something to jig up. (laughs) I did something similar to that, Mark, um, way, 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 way back when, well, not that far, but maybe 2008 or so, um, I built a little desk organizer and it had a, a, a recess, you know, that little recess that's common on the bottom of green and green table legs Mm -hmm. where it's this slight kind of indent. Yes. Um, I did the same thing where I built a router jig that was on an angle and I just ran it over and it, it created this little sliding ramp that you could put a notepad on. Uh, and it came out really well. Uh, the problem was it's a straight ramp. You don't have that curvature shape to it. Yeah. So rather than it being an inclined ramp, you'd have to almost build in a curve itself or you're going to end up with a flat ramp where the egg won't nestle in it. Yeah. You almost have to do that thing where you like mount the router on a big board and put that board, like mount it to the rafter and allow it to swing in an arc like like a pendulum. That sounds like great fun. <laughs> that uh, that sounds like a lot of work, but uh, you, you, router bit on a pendulum. <laughs> right. Edgar Allan Poe would have written that book had power routers existed. Yes, he would have. Well, you uh, know, one thing I was thinking is uh, maybe using something like a uh, some sort of drill jig, like say on a, on a, a drill press, if you had something like that, and setting the wood on an angle and kind of coming down almost uh, pocket hole style. Yeah, maybe with, with like a Forstner bit or something like get the get the size you want, and then of course then you probably have to come in and touch it up. I keep thinking of like uh, spoon carvers when they yeah, you have exactly. the spoon and, and yeah do something like that like kind of yeah exactly it dish it out a little bit a cool. good excuse to have to maybe get some new tools mm-hmm. there you go see any any excuse is a good excuse that's right and then you can make a spoon to set the egg on while you eat it that way you're <laughs> proper you know that's the polite way to eat a cadbury egg and i just shove yeah. them in in one bite yeah, yeah same here <laughs> all right cadbury uh, eggs and tea let's see next one here we got from max and he's got a question about budget chisels Hey guys, this is Max in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I apologize if you've weighed in on this one already, but I'm in the market for a new set of chisels, definitely budget-oriented, so I just wanted to get your take on the Stanley Sweetheart line, uh, if you've had any experience with those or have anything to say about them, uh, or any other recommendations of some chisels that might be slightly more budget-oriented. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. I don't know that I would really call the Stanley Sweetheart a budget chisel, would you? Not at like a set of eight. In fact, I'm looking at one right now at uh, a, fam- a big retailer, and it's like a set of eight for, oh, they're on sale for 200 Yeah, I wouldn't call that a budget mm-hmm. chisel. But um, do you guys want to, first of all, weigh in on the Stanley Sweetheart chisels and sure. then also make a recommendation on something cheap? Well, it's probably, I'm probably a little spoiled because the Stanley Sweethearts are essentially, well, they're modeled after the original Stanley, but most people today would say, oh, that's modeled after Lee Nielsen, not realizing which egg came first. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I'm spoiled having used Lee Nielsen's. When I pick up a Stanley Sweetheart chisel, it feels cheap. The balance is off. Um, the handles aren't quite the same. It doesn't, it doesn't feel as, as good as a Lee Nielsen chisel does, but that's all in kind of the warm, fuzzy feel side of things. Um, I'm of the mindset that <clears throat> most modern chisels using modern manufacturer and metallurgy production are pretty good for what we need them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we do get a little caught up in chisels and what steel is it and what's the edge retention like. Yes, there are some chisels that don't hold an edge as long, but you know we're woodworkers. We should know how to sharpen. So if it gets dull, you go and sharpen it. And if a chisel gets dull faster, then you become a better sharpener. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the, the glass half full there. Um, 
frankly, I am not a proponent of buying a set of chisels. Uh, and I know there's lots of people who have harped on this. They, there are sets of chisels. Now, I guess it depends on how many chisels are in the set. But you'll end up with a set of chisels and like three of them you will never even use. Um, they just sit there and don't ever – now they stay sharp because you don't ever use them. Um, I actually recommend going vintage in this case. Mm. You know, reach out to somebody like Josh Clark or Patrick Leach. You know, don't necessarily look at what's on their tool list. Just email them directly and say, this is what I'm looking for. I need a quarter inch, three eighths, three quarters inch. And they will put together a set of, of vintage chisels, which, you know, good quality steel, um, really nice balance from people who use chisels all day long. And you're going to pay a fraction of the cost. Cool. So, that would be my recommendation. Do you guys have a modern recommendation? I don't because I, I use what I use and I haven't experimented with others to be able to comment intelligently. Right. We uh, did talk back in episode 157. Uh, Beat Your Bag was the title of that one. And, oh, that was one of my favorites. Yes. And uh, we talked about chisels and uh, chisel sets and I don't know how in depth we went, but I know we talked quite a bit about them. I don't know if we talked about budget-friendly chisels, but... Uh, given his budget and what he's stating, he may want to take a listen to that. Um, right. well, I, I know a lot of people who've used Narex with great results. I know right. lots of people using blue chip marples chisels, the blue handled ones. Yeah. And um, quite a few people are very happy with the Wood River chisels. Uh, if I remember correctly, those are actually the chisels that Chuck Bender bought for his school. Right. Um, and I did use them there um, and just fine. Again, I'm not picky when it comes to chisels. Cool. All right, let's jump into our emails. Got quite a few to get through, so let's jump into it. Let's do it. Shall we? Okay, I uh, got one here from Tom. He says, I have some cabinet making in my near future and have a basement shop that's nearly impossible to wrestle sheet goods into. I watched the Grizzly Traxall review. He's referencing a uh, comparison video I did between the, the Grizzly and the Festool. Uh, he says, would love to break sheets down in my garage to save myself any chance of injuring myself, the plywood and or the walls. When I cut plywood down with a homemade guide and my circular saw, I always use masking tape that I burnish down to stabilize the, the cut line. Uh, would that solve the tear-out issue that you noted with the Grizzly? Do you think a higher quality blade would have helped? Now, what he's talking about is when I compared the two, the Grizzly just had a little bit more tear-out. And these are, you know, these are really good saws with a good guide that has a splinter guard on it. So it does a really good job without any other assistance. Pardon me. Uh, of keeping that cut line really nice and sharp. Unfortunately, the Grizzly did not perform as well as the Festool, considering the price difference. That was a little reassuring. Uh, but ultimately, you can still get really, really clean, decent cuts. And frankly, they were clean enough with the Grizzly that I don't even know that I'd bother doing any of this other stuff, like using blue tape. But if you're looking for absolute perfection, before you do the blue tape thing, yes, do upgrade that that blade to something higher quality with more teeth, and you're going to get a really, really clean cut from that. I'd, I'd hate to see you get any kind of a track saw of any price and still have to put down blue tape um, to right. help keep that cut clean, yeah, uh, e even on the Grizzly. So yeah, I think blue tape will help, but I like to recommend blue tape in situations where you don't have a splinter guard. You don't have, um, you know, maybe you don't have access to a really high quality blade or a budget. Blue tape is one solution to help keep those fibers uh, stabilized there. Uh, but definitely upgrade that blade because that's going to be the single most important thing that's going to affect your, your cut quality. Heck yeah. Oh yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Hey, sweet. Well, this next question came in from Dustin. And you know what? Uh, one of our earlier kickbacks might actually uh, have a little something to do with this, but probably not. Anyways, though, Dustin says, I'm fairly new to hand tool use. And as I get more into it, it's obviously uh, I found I obviously need uh, to sharpen the blades. I recently bought some Norton Water Stones and the Veritas MK2 jig. And the first attempt at sharpening a chisel went relatively well. Of course, that was short lived when I subsequently dropped the chisel on the concrete floor and now had to start all over. I hate when that happens. (laughs) It's a learning experience. Yes, at least it's not on your foot. So here's where things seem to have gone wrong. I started back at the lowest grit to get rid of a dinged up corner. Kept everything aligned well in the jig, but after just the 220 and 1000 grits, something seemed off. I put a straight edge up to the blade and it appears to be cambered. Could this have been from the dishing out of the stones? Uh, They haven't seen... They haven't seen that much use yet, uh, but they do not. But do they need to be flattened after every use? And my response is simply: uh, it's always a very good idea when you're using water stones that you should really get in the habit of flattening the stones once you get done using them. The beauty of traditional water stones, Japanese water stones especially, is that they are extremely friable. So this means that they uh, the surface gets renewed constantly and unlike, say, a traditional oil stone, uh, that surface then will start to, of course, take on a different shape depending on how much you're using it. And so it is a very good idea to make sure that once you get done doing your sharpening to go back in and flatten those surfaces, it only takes maybe a few strokes at the most just to get it renewed. Uh, and you probably, I, mean, I have a very good feeling that that is probably what he is running into on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's, Norton that's my, especially, um, yeah, they're very soft really if I remember fast. right. Yeah. yeah. And the, the lower the grit, the stone, I think the more friable they are. Cause if you think about it, they're bigger, bigger pieces of abrasive, um, yeah, that are, so are like coming off. Two twenty breaks it. up really fast, and so does a thousand. Yeah, so if you get into the habit of every time you use your stone, just quickly flatten it right afterwards. It only takes literally seconds once you get uh, into the habit of it. And the next time you pull that stone out, when you have a situation like this, you can go right to town, and you will have to worry less about it. And the other great thing that I like about doing that is not just to flatten it, but it cleans it. It makes it look a lot right. better. It gets all the metal uh, swarf and uh, dirt and crap off of there. It just makes it look brand new, and it's ready to go the next time. Yeah, you know, Swarf is actually that stone barf. Stone, stone barf. <laughs> nice. Wow. All right. This, this next email comes from Mariah. I recently watched a video of a guy who was using a draw knife. I think he was using it to make the bottom part of a set of legs for a table. Do any of the three of you use a draw knife? If so, what types of situations or circumstances would you choose to use the tool? Is this a tool I should think of adding to my shop or can I accomplish the same job with other tools such as a rasp? Or is the draw knife more of a woodcarver's tool? I am a recent um, convert to the school of draw knifing. <clears throat> I don't even know if that's a word, draw knifing. I only use um, draw knives when I'm fighting a sketch. <laughs> wow. That's just really dumb. <laughs> um, Another Vanderlist moment. <laughs> right. Another one of those awkward Vanderlist moments. Uh, a draw knife is, is an incredibly powerful tool. It, it's certainly intimidating because it's a handle with a blade. You know, there's no, no sole, no depth stop, no, none of this stuff. So it really, it 
requires, I think, not necessarily a lot of technique, but you do have to learn to use it. It can be an incredibly rough removal tool down to a finish, uh, a, that create, uh, a tool that creates a finish-ready surface. And uh, when I took a Windsor class from Elliot Bazzari a while back, I really got to see what a, you know, a good draw knife user can do. It was amazing watching Elliot do this. And he you know, told us, hey, you can do all this with a draw knife. And you spend enough time with it and you start to realize just how much you can do with it. Um, traditionally, I think it's been uh, kind of the green woodworker tool and the chair maker tool because, you know, when you're starting with a split log, it's real quick to take a, a flat face to that split log. When you're buying lumber off the shelf, even especially if it's like S4S lumber, the draw knife, you know, it loses some of its ability because you already have done that rough work and now you're moving on to more refining work and something like a spoke shave could be um, a better substitute. A rasp, I don't think, is a substitute because a rasp is not really an edge tool. It's it's more of an abrasive tool like sandpaper. Um, now, that doesn't mean you can't shape something with a rasp. I love using rasps myself, but it's not going to necessarily create a finish-ready surface like an edge, a sharpened edge tool would be. So you can't really pigeonhole a draw knife um, and say it's a woodcarver's tool or a chairmaker's tool. It's just a really cool tool, but there is a big learning curve to it. And, um, you know, sharpening in and of itself, there's so many different types of draw knives. I think it should be added to every toolkit, but, you know, that's just me because I'm a hand tool freak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, to answer your question, Mariah, I've never used one. Um, sh- have you used one, Matt? Um, I did once, and then I almost cut myself in half <laughs> with it, literally. So I decided that it was probably best to put it away until I get more familiar with it. So you realized it actually wasn't a, like, old-school razor for shaving? Pretty much, and that's what I'm like. I'm keeping the beard. I got a lot of facial hair, so I need a nice wide blade to get this. Actually, done. if anybody noticed, my beard got shorter. That's shortly after I used. Right. <laughs> yeah, make sure you keep both hands on the draw knife. That way, you don't cut yourself. Yeah, cool. All right, we got another one here from Keith. He says, "I just planed the back slab of my split top Rubo workbench to final width without checking for twist, like a dummy." And uh-huh. There is twist. He says, uh, do you guys think that it's possible to clamp the high sides down to the sawhorses and twist it back to flatness or semi-flatness? I'm not overly concerned about it, but I would like it to be as flat as possible. And I, I did write Keith back about this. So this is duplicate info for him and hopefully new for other people. Now, this slab is like four inches thick. <laughs> and there are boards that you can kind of convince that they want to go back. You could, you know, sort of overclamp them and bring them back to some, you know, some state that's close to flat again. But a lot of times they have a tendency to want to go right back to where they were. You can use water or if you could, you know, steam treat them or something, you could certainly reset its its memory, if you will. Uh, but I think of it a lot like hair. You know, you can have your hair curled or straightened um, and it does always seem to want to have this tendency to go back, but you can convince it to do otherwise. The problem is by the time you get to a four inch thick slab, there's really not a whole lot that could be done about that. If you try to clamp it to anything and get the twist out in all likelihood, you are just going to wind up contorting the thing you're clamping it to because it's going to conform to the shape of that slab. So at four inches thick of solid hard wood, you're really better off. Uh, and this is what I told Keith is, is flattening the bottom, making sure or shimming it so that it sits nice and even on the stand securing it in place and flattening, flattening that top the traditional way um, or, or using router rails or something because there's just, at least that I know of, no real feasible way that you're going to clamp any of that twist out of a four-inch thick slab that size. Right. right. And remember, it's okay if your Rubo workbench top is not four inches thick. 
Yeah, you know, and that's if you flatten it out, and now it's three and seven eighths, oh, you'll be yeah. okay. The, well, right. the, the the reason I think people get concerned about that is if you're using the benchcrafted hardware and templates, and you go under four, you start to have to do math. And honestly, it's like, it's one of those things where it's so much easier just to follow the instructions as printed and not have to do that. Um, but that's exactly what happens with that, uh, the end vice, the tail vice on the, with the bench crafted <laughs> stuff. But as uh, so I can see why people want to retain that four. um, but yeah, there's really no harm in going a little bit thinner Four four inches in a workbench top is very generous. All I can say is that the Benchcrafted hardware has gotten a heck of a lot easier to install than when I installed like the version one of it. So <laughs> yeah. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I, I no saw more some curved recess anymore. So y'all just shut up. I saw some of those early uh, instruction manuals and I'm looking at it going, oh, <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> that doesn't look so fun, uh, but hopefully that helps you out. Keith, uh, Matt, you're up. Definitely. Uh, hey, so this one came in from Peter, and Peter says, please give me any possible tips about setting up this Veritas side rabbit plane. After fiddling with the two set screws, I have the blade oh so slightly protruding from the side of the plane per the instructions. It will sort of work, but after a short while, we'll then start cutting an angled rabbit, which I can only assume means the blade is protruding too much. Yikes. Is this the most finicky plane ever made? Now, just for a quick follow-up, uh, we actually have decided that rather than being the Veritas side rabbit plane, actually the plane that Peter is referring to is the skew rabbit plane. There is two. These are two different planes, actually. Uh, so once we came to this conclusion, hopefully we've been able to help Peter out a little bit with this answer. And what it sounds like to me is if he has the, uh, the, the set screws in place and he has the, the blade all set up, and with that skew rabbit plane, it is to just oh so slightly – in fact, actually, I think they said the width of a piece of paper is how much that blade should protrude out the side. So it would be going towards the shoulder of the rabbit. Uh, that's, that's the depth that you need to have. And once you have it all set up and ready to go, you should have no problems. Now, typically, and I'm not sure, if I, I know Peter responded to this. I'm not sure if this is exactly what he was doing, but this is probably the most common situation when things go wrong with this plane is that people are holding on to the, hand, the tote and the, uh, the knob like they would a traditional hand plane. And in fact, what you want to do with uh, any type of rabbit plane, not just the skew, but any type of rabbit plane, is you want to concentrate all your pressure on the fence and the hand that's in the back on the tote is just more or less adding forward pressure. It shouldn't really be holding on to the tote because the whole entire time your hand should be pushing that fence up against the wood and maintaining that inward pressure. Mm. Now, if it is starting to create an angle either in or out, that's when you would adjust the blade. But almost guaranteed, because I, I know I ran into this issue when I was using the plane when I first brought it into the shop, was I was not putting enough forward pressure, or uh, actually sideways pressure is the better description, on that fence and keeping it snug against the, uh, the wood itself. Because once you stop pushing that sideways pressure, it's amazing how that plane will just go wherever it wants to. I recommend adding an auxiliary fence. Take a block of wood. There are already holes in the fence that you can screw through. Um, something that's going to be wider than that narrow fence that comes with Lee Valley, that's going to help a lot. And then you can really push that against your board, and you'll end up having a lot a lot more lock. But definitely take the hand off that front knob. I, am, I, am I wrong? Didn't Christopher Schwartz, like remove that knob? From the plane. If he didn't, they, they should be a recommendation right off there. I agree. Yeah, because I, I used to hold on to that too until I saw something from him and I think someplace else and I was like, oh, 
<laughs> that's all for that's for decoration. <laughs> Biggest thing though is yes, it is the most finicky plane ever made. So don't right. feel bad. It's a and, royal pain in the butt to set up. Yeah, because I think I still I, I I've mentioned before I I hate taking that blade out to sharpen it just because of that fact that it is so finicky to set up. The the folks over at Lee Valley I kind of helped us out a little bit with this, and they also recommended checking out a video they have at YouTube, which is titled setting up and using the Veritas SKU rabbit plane. So you might be able to find that as a good resource. Yeah, if you're listening, Lee Valley, make a PMV-11 blade for that so I don't have to sharpen it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we've got a a question, comment, dissertation from from Ashley, the (laughs) modernist woodworker. He says, I've been collecting Art Deco furniture for over 10 years now, albeit the much cheaper variety. And it was a desire to make reproductions in this style that sucked me into woodworking about a year ago. But once I started learning about the craft, what did I find in terms of magazine articles, plans, etc. to help me on my quest? A 2006 fine woodworking article on making faceted Ruhlman legs. And uh, Emil Ruhlman, by the way, was the artist we were talking about in the Brad Pitt episode. Mm. All the Art Deco stuff was modeled after Ruhlman's designs. Uh, so he found an article on making Ruhlman legs, a 20-year-old article in American Woodworker with a cabinet plan. But otherwise, after an extensive search, I found nothing. After visiting New York on business recently, I stopped by Tools for Working Wood, ran into Joel Moskowitz, and posted a, posed this question to him. His answer is, no one does it because it's hard. <laughs> I, I asked him to elaborate, and that led to a great conversation where he arrived at these possible reasons. Number one, Art Deco was predominantly oak carcasses covered with an expensive veneer, but the veneer also covers up all the precise joinery we worked so hard to master as woodworkers and want to display. Number two, it requires a broader range of skills than the beginning to average woodworker has mastered, which is one of the core markets of woodworking publishers. For example, too many curved shapes, even on carcasses, 90 degree angles are way easier. Then there is veneering, marquetry, inlay, steam bending, and even metalworking, which woodworkers hate almost as much as knitting. And three, it is expensive to make. So he wants to know if we have any other theories. And then his second question is, if I did want to try to master all these skills, uh, I'd need to take uh, a crack at doing French deco reproductions. Where would I start? Currently, I'm working my way through a green and green bedroom suite to get some more sawdust under my feet. After that, what's the game plan? I live in the Bay Area, and David Marks appears to have a number of great classes on curved pieces inlay marquetry. And my missing resources online would Chuck Bender be a resource for out of print books on Art Deco construction techniques? I am at a loss. Well, Ashley, I think um, you and Joel kind of hit it on the head. The the first thing we have to consider is that um, leave the difficulty out of the out of it here. Art Deco is one of those highly stylized styles designs that. We kind of our modern sensibilities. You, it, it's a very polarized thing. You either love it or you absolutely hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so strikingly different and so I, I, I'll say over designed, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, kind of what I was talking about earlier in the show, where we tend to combine so many different things into one piece. That's Art Deco. It's very cool, in my opinion. But it does not fit in kind of the modern household. Well, it tries it def- very hard to be different. Yes, exactly. That's the perfect way to put it. Thank you, Mark. You are welcome. Hey, that's awesome. Teamwork. So, you know, modern modern architecture, the way most houses, residential homes are designed now, just Art Deco doesn't fit into it. We have fallen into this kind of modern, simple, which again turns into Asian and Shaker design um, because that's kind of what we're told is nice. You look at any DIY network, HGTV, it's all in that line. 
even another example of highly stylized furniture would be the Chippendale style. It's highly, highly embellished, ornate versions of the Queen Anne style. And nine times out of ten, if you're into period furniture, you tend to fall on that, ooh, I respect Chippendale, but I like Queen Anne. Because Chippendale's like all this crap built into it. You'll find that throughout a lot of things and, and really where as kind of history has moved on and we've had more things to look back on, we find that Art Deco has inspired a lot of stuff. But what's popular now is, for lack of a better term, the dumbed down version of it. And, and that just doesn't – that appeals to a broader range of people. It goes back to Joel's point of the core market for woodworking magazines and woodworking publishing is the beginner to average woodworker, but also what more people are going to want to build themselves. If you can look at a piece and go, wow, that's really cool. I respect how that's made, but there's no way that will ever go in my house. No one's ever going to build it. And, and that's where all of this comes from. So – what I think that you need to look at, though, Ashley, is the skills that underlie all of this. Are, they are covered. Um, bending, whether it's bent lamination or seam bending, has been covered a lot in woodworking media, from Michael Fortune's designs to steam bent through guys like uh, Pete Galbert. Um, bent lamination has been covered a lot by David Marks. Um, Sam Maloof used bent lamination. There's a lot of articles out there on that technique. There's also quite a bit written on marquetry, and we're getting more and more of that right now. That tends to be kind of in vogue right now since uh, Lost Art Press just came out with um, the translation of Rubo's uh, marquetry book. So you're seeing a lot actually woodworking in America this year. You're going to see a lot there. Um, In your resource, granted, the Bay Area is pretty far north, but um, the American School of Marquetry run by um, Patrick Edwards, right? The old brown glue guy. Mm -hmm. I think that's in the L.A. area. Um, so it's not exactly close, but it's a heck of a lot closer to you than it is to me on the East Coast. Um, that would be a great place to start because Patrick is schooled in the French marquetry style. Um, and that's really where a lot of this comes from. So you actually do have some resources real close at hand. I also think that Art Deco is one of those styles where you're not going to find a lot of how-to construction books, but you're going to find a lot of museum-style books, mm-hmm. coffee table books. And I actually think that's where you get to a certain point in your woodworking, you stop buying the instructional books and you start buying more of the museum books because you just want inspiration. You know, you recognize that underneath all that glitz, it's kind of the same mortise and tenon joinery. So you move away from that and focus on, um, you know, which he probably has some of that already since he's a collector. So I, I don't think there's as much of a, of a scarcity of information out there as you think. It's just techniques under, you know, arts and crafts and shaker pieces, but it's the same techniques that you would find in, in Art Deco, but Art Deco's taken it kind of up the notch a little bit. Green and green is very much the same way. A lot of people absolutely hate green and green because it's a highly stylized version of Ruskin or, or Morris or Stickley. Yeah. Um, and people like, you know, the general design sensibility is more of that mellow, simplistic design. Yeah, and I think a lot of the Art Deco stuff is some of it can be so out there that, yeah, you might be able to get close with the foundations of woodworking that we are sort of uh, familiar with, that we know and love, and bent lamination and steam bending and then veneering on top of those things. But some of the stuff that people are making, 
really, really stretches the limits of what we know is possible. So a lot of it can be very experimental. And the people who do this kind of also have to be a bit of an engineer to come up with not only the initial design, but then how the heck are we going to make something that looks like this out of wood and make it stable? So, so there's a lot of experimentation out there. And my guess is in a lot of cases, the people who are out there really pushing the limits and, and they're right on the, on the cusp of what's new aren't really going to spend their time teaching other people because they're really focused on pursuing their art form. And a lot right. of it is new ground. I mean, look, I've seen some of the stuff like, uh, like what Wendell Castle makes some yeah, of, some of his stuff, of exactly mind boggling. Like you look at the platforms to a table and you just go, how did he actually build that up? And a lot of it is experimentation in various materials to get where you want it to be. Some of these things don't look as good now, a few years later as they did when they were first made, because it was, uh, inherently an unstable design in the way that it was constructed. So it's definitely a lot more experimentation in there. I think, I think marketry is the place to start for him. You know, look yeah. at Silas Koff, look at Paul Schurch, look at Patrick Edwards. All three of them are published. All three of them have things you can look at. Silas Koff's Masterpiece of Marketry, I think is what it's called. Fantastic mm. book. Comes with a DVD as well. A um, lot of, and Silas, I think it's closer to the Art Deco style than, than the other two. Paul Schurch is, you know, a traditional cabinet maker who's added marketry to make his stuff stand out. Um, Patrick Edwards, um, you know, his stuff is absolutely beautiful. Silas is, is and this, don't take this wrong. This is not saying any, the other two are not as, as good, but Silas is that artist who's out there making furniture and kind of pushing those boundaries a little bit. Um, he's less about teaching and more about producing. And yeah. I think you'll find a lot of cool stuff with him. Good deal. Lots to look at. And if you're not familiar with Art Deco, just Google Art Deco Furniture and click the images link at the top. If you just want to see a really wide variety, very wild furniture, just stuff that's really out there. Uh, but or, yeah. or just watch The Great Gatsby. Yeah, that's too. version. <laughs> or look at the Empire State Building. There you go. Cool. All right. Well, you know what everybody asks me? Like every day, four or five times a day, they go, Oh, oh I know what they say. How do you do it, man? Seven years with Matt. Are you insane? Are you on a medication? Yes, a lot of a lot of medication is what gets me through it. I thought it was what's the best barbecue rope. No, no. They want to know. They want to know how can we support Wood Talk. You know, and I'm like, oh yeah, that was my next guess. I never get that question six or seven times a day. The problem is it's Shannon. Uh, he's constantly emailing me and uh, frankly, it's getting annoying, but uh, yeah. So, so if you want to support us, we have quite a few ways that you can do it. See, I'm not here. I'm not here. I have to pay them in order to be here, guys. That's <laughs> How can I support the show? Please keep me Please on. Let me stay on. Here's let $5. Uh, you can do a recurring donation, Shannon, if you'd like, just go to woodtalkshow.com on the left-hand column. You'll see some links for small dollar amount, recurring donations or a one-time donation. And of course we appreciate that kind of support. Wood Talk shirts, you can get those at TWWstore.com. Those are beautiful. We have them in all kinds of sizes for the big ones and the little ones out there. And uh, also, you could leave us a review in the iTunes store. Just click on uh, ratings and reviews when you find our listing in the store directory. Click that five-star rating, just like uh, we got a few here. iPod user Sand Hill Bill and returning woodworker. And uh, he had this to say. Actually, I don't know if it's a guy because it could be a girl. Uh, says woodworking for the radio. These guys are informative, entertaining. I just caught up with all the old issues of their, and their maturation as podcasters is amazing. 
I'm not sure we matured very much, but <laughs> yeah, so we, we couldn't get back. much more immature, so we had to it go one goes backwards. We're in our Peter Pan phase, apparently. Right. He uh, continues, let's face it, uh, making woodworking sound exciting is a tough task. Between this podcast, Modern Woodworkers Association, and Fine Woodworking, uh, I guess he's talking about um, uh, Shop Live, uh, Shop Talk Live, uh, my workouts fly by. P.S. Individually, they have excellent video podcasts. If you can get past their fashion statements, <laughs> you son of a... What? Uh, look, t-shirt and shorts. I'm not making a statement other than that I don't care. And and <laughs> you know? length up and down. What can I say? That is, isn't that Stay our away statement? From a draw knife. We don't give a crap. That's the statement. <laughs> uh, the subject of the the other two is I have to read them. They're kind of funny. Uh, Sandhill Bill's subject says, uh, "Laugh till you shoot splinters out your nose." <laughs> and Ouch. this iPod user guy says, uh, "Number one woodwork show in all Kazakhstan." <laughs> which i loved that's uh, awesome yeah it's great so thank you very much for those reviews that always helps us get good placement in the store and keeps our numbers up we appreciate that and matt how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here all right folks hey do you have a comment a question or a topic suggestion perhaps it's coming in from behind the former uh iron curtain we would love to hear from all of you i hear we're huge in bulgaria also <laughs> Actually, wait, never mind. Anyway, so you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Woodtalk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Woodtalk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Very nice. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And remember, never trust the Woodtalk guys for geography lessons. No, no, please don't. No, I, I would probably end up in Canada. Maybe. And you know what? Enjoy Big your cream eggs. to Budapest, North Dakota. <laughs> what? Where's that? I want to go there. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Right. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there!